Well, happy Labor Day weekend. It's good to see you here this morning. You saw we're starting a new series today in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So if you're a guest, this is a great Sunday for you to be starting with us because we're starting this new series, Turning the World Upside Down. You hear a lot of those heavy news lines that's in there, but God has called us to be a part of the change, and He's going to do that through us. And so we're going to see in the book of 1 Thessalonians how God desires to use us to change our city, to change our neighborhoods, and ultimately to have an impact on the world. It's God's desire for us. So I know some of you have already made your way to 1 Thessalonians. Keep your finger there or pause there and we'll flip over to Acts 17. We're going to be in Acts 17 first because this is the context of what we're going to see happening in 1 Thessalonians. And context is key to understand possibilities. Now if you are a movie fan, you enjoy watching movies, I'm going to show you a little thing. Maybe you've never noticed this before, but every movie starts the same way. It gives you the context, gives you the setting so you know what's possible, what can happen in that movie. So maybe you turn on the movie and you see a city, a city skyline, right? And then it zooms in and you see the busy streets where people are walking in and out of coffee shops and they're going to work and they're getting on the subway and all these things. And you can watch that at the beginning of a movie and think, whether you realize it or not, you're like, okay, I have an idea of what could happen, right? Uh, maybe there's going to be a lot of different relationships with people. Like they're going to interact because there's a lot of people around. There's a lot of, maybe business could happen in this movie. Or maybe it's a romantic comedy where a guy and a girl are going to meet. Like that's all a possibility of what could happen when you kind of see this skyline. You know, people are going to be there. Now the opposite extreme, you see a movie and it starts with this like barren wilderness, right? Where it's just like a river that's cutting through it and you, you think right away, well, there's not going to be like a coffee shop scene, right? Uh, this might be a survivor movie where, where one person's there and they're trying to survive in the wilderness. Maybe they're going to interact and there's a couple people that they could talk over a campfire, but most certainly they're not going to sit down in a coffee shop, right? Because you can just get a, a glimpse right at the beginning. This is the context. Or maybe one more for you. You see a dark alley at the very beginning of a movie. It kind of zooms into this dark alley, and you see somebody, it zooms in on their face, and, uh, and then it zooms down, and they're, they're putting a gun, they're putting bullets in, in a gun, and they're getting ready, and you're like, okay, there's intrigue in this movie, right? Is this guy going to go and try to harm somebody with that gun, or is he going to go try to rescue and protect somebody with that gun? Like, what could happen? All of that with just a snapshot, right? Just a glimpse of the context helps you understand the possibilities, and that's what we're going to see in Acts 17. We're going to get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 in a second, but in Acts 17, it doesn't just tell us where we are and what actions can take place, but it shows us how it's even possible. See, there's a huge difference between getting a, a little context in Africa and having a story based there or a story based in outer space. So we get a glimpse right here in Acts 17 of what could happen and where it's happening. So let's look, starting in verse 1 from the Word of God. It says this, And when they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them for the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Jews, 
and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews, specifically the Jewish leaders, they were jealous. And taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them. They are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, King Jesus. And when the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Lord, you are the God who never changes. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And although you never change, Lord, you love to work in us and to change us. In your loving wisdom, you change our hearts and you change our minds. And I pray that today that you would take what is broken in us and you would exchange it for that which is beautiful. Lord, we know and confess that you love to change a hard heart to a heart full of love. And pray that you would do that today. And I ask, Lord, that in your grace and in your kindness and in your power that you would take away the weight and anxiety that is weighing on us and that you would flip the gravity, literally turning our world upside down. God, would you change our perspective and use this morning this truth from your word to change our hearts and ultimately to change our city to the glory of your name. Now let me invite you to to pray this morning and just this moment of silence, pray that God would Take away the weight from your heart and your mind and give you refreshment in him. Would you pray and ask him now to do that? And then take a moment to pray for me in these few moments that I have with you this morning that I would be helpful to you as I show us God's truth. Just just pray for me now. Lord Jesus, we ask today that you would shape our will and our way according to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in Acts 17, there's a statement in here that's a huge statement because it shows us our context of the possibilities, what actions can take place. And it's found in verse 3. Paul walks in and he's preaching to these people that it's necessary for Christ to suffer, which we'll get into in a minute. But more importantly than that, that he would rise from the dead. That is the context for the city of Thessalonica. That's our context today. That Christ is risen from the grave. And that means anything is possible. When a man conquers the grave, anything is possible. And so we have to understand, we have to go into this passage and understanding, if God is calling us to turn the world upside down, we cannot bring our excuses and lay them before God. We look to God, the one who has all power and all might over all things, and say, He can turn the world upside down through us because he has conquered 
the grave. And what I love about this is he preaches this message, Christ suffered and he conquered the grave. And then we find in verse 6, as he preaches this message, this is the title that they get. This is what's known about them. This is their reputation. It says, these men have turned the world upside down. They've turned the world upside down. And notice in verse 6, if you look in your Bible, this is not Paul and Silas and Christians that are giving themselves this title. They're not coming in saying, hey guys, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're big stuff. We're the ones that turn the world upside down, so listen to us. That's not what they say about themselves. It's their opposition that makes this claim. This opposition is the one that's saying, these men have changed the world. They've changed the world. So what I want us to do is kind of unpack that. How do we get here, right? How do we get to the spot where God would use us, whether we might be few or not, to change the world, to turn the world upside down? And so this morning, if I came to you and I asked you that question, how would you change the world? How would you turn the world upside down? How would you answer that question? How would you try and change the world? I mean, for me, there's three things that I would ask for. If God's like, I want to use you to change the world, I'm like, okay, God, if you want to use me, then I'm going to need some resources. First, I'm going to need the crowds. Okay, I need people on my side. And if we can get a large enough group of people backing this movement, we'll change the world. We'll do it, God. We'll change it. Okay, and if we don't get that, at least, God, if there's just a few of us buying into it, like, as long as we don't have any opposition, as long as there's nobody opposing us, maybe they're, like, passively opposing us, that's at best, if they're passively opposing us, then we're good. But if you could remove all opposition, then we will change the world. And then, man, kind of the icing on top of that cake, if you could just get us, like, influential leaders, (laughs) if you could get us, like, these political leaders and these influential leaders on our side, believing what we believe, then we could turn the world upside down. We could do it. Just give us those three things, God, and we'll change the world. Now, what's fascinating about that is, in this passage, they don't have any of these three resources. And yet, they're changing the world. I mean, look at this. They don't have the crowds. They, they have opposition. They don't have leadership on their side, and yet they still have this title, men who've turned the world upside down. I mean, look at this. They don't have the masses. In verse 1, it says, and they pass through. Who's the they there? Well, it tells us in verse 4 that Paul and Silas. So there's two, but I'd argue that there's probably three based on 1 Thessalonians, that Timothy is probably with them as well. So you have three people that we know of. Three people that came into the city. And this isn't the first city they've done this in. These three men have gone to other cities. And they're changing the world. These three men, Timothy, Silas, and Paul. What? They only have three people. Well, then they they couldn't have had opposition, right? If there's only three of them. No, they have massive opposition. The people that are opposed to them, they form a mob. They get a mob going. They're like, okay... You have the they of three people. We have the they of a whole mass of people, a whole crowd. And they've got people behind them. And they're literally saying, you're coming in with this message and three people. We're coming in with a mass of people. We're going to crush your message. That's what they're going to do. That's what they're going to try to do. It even says that they attacked the house of Jason, the place where they were staying. They attack it. 
These are not, this is not passive opposition. It's not people are like, mm, we really don't agree with what you're saying, but eh, we'll let it go. We'll let it pass. No, these people are actively oppressing and attacking based on this disagreement. That's what they're doing. And if you look at verse 6, they don't come to Jason's house where Paul and Silas were staying and put their arm around Jason's shoulder and say, hey, Jason, hey, we really disagree with what's being said, so we need you to come here and speak to the city authorities, and let's, like, let's wrestle through these things and debate it, and then we'll kind of decide on what we're going to do. Like, that's not what they do. They attacked his house, and they drag him out of it. I mean, this is like NFL style. Let's tackle him, and let's just pull him away. That's what they're doing in that moment. This is real opposition. This is real opposition that's happening, and yet somehow they're able to change the city and ultimately change the whole province of Macedonia. Well, okay, if they don't have the masses on their side, they don't have the, the op, they, don't, they have opposition, then certainly they had to have leadership on their side. Like political leaders have to have been on the same page as Paul and Silas for this to take root. Right? That's not what verse 8 says. It says the authorities were disturbed by what they heard. They don't like the change. They don't want the change to happen. The only thing that can calm their anxiety in this moment is cash. They're like, okay, if you'll just pay us off, then we'll let you go and it'll be fine. They're looking to cash to calm their nerves in this moment. They didn't have the authorities on their side. And, and this isn't the first time. If you read chapter 16 of Acts all the way through chapter 19, over and over again, these men are going into cities and they're getting turned over to the authorities. And the authorities are, pro, are throwing them in prison or throwing them out of the city. It's happening time and time and time again. So it's interesting. What we would say, we need to change the world. God's like, no, that's not what I need to change the world. I don't need those things. Without the masses, I can still turn the world upside down. With strong opposition, I can turn the world upside down. With leadership that's against you, I can turn the world upside down. With three men, I can turn the world upside down. He changes the lives of the people here in Thessalonica. He does it. And I love how Paul does it. It tells us that he, he comes in and he opens up the scriptures. He reads the Bible to them. It says in verse 2, he reasoned with them. In verse 3, he explained it to them, proving that it was necessary. Paul, Paul didn't come up there and just yell and scream loudly. He came in here and he's like, man, we're just going to look at God's truth. And we're going to see what God's truth says. And God's truth persuades them of the beauty of the gospel-changing power. And that's what it says here. It says that some were persuaded and they believed. What were they persuaded about? What was it that they believed in? It tells us in verse 3. It says that he was saying it was necessary for Christ to suffer. And that he raised from the dead. It was necessary for Christ to suffer. This past week I heard about a, a Christian who he wanted to share his faith more, but he was an extreme introvert. He's like, I don't know how to talk to people about Jesus. I don't know how to talk to people, period. And I'm actually really comfortable in just like my inner bubble of, of, of being uh, an introvert. Like I'm comfortable there. But he said, I'm going to be faithful and pray because God's told me to, to share the gospel with people. And so he just prayed, God, would you open up a door for me just to share the good news with somebody? 
And the very next day after he prayed that prayer, a friend of his, this girl came up and said, hey, I know that you're like, you believe in this Jesus thing. And last night for the very first time, I watched this movie called Passion of the Christ. And she's like, I do not get it. I do not understand why that good man had to suffer. Why did he have to suffer? It's like, thank you, God. Answer prayer, like wide open door. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying it was necessary for Christ to suffer. And that's a good question to ask. Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer? It's because of our sin. It's because of our sin. He suffered for our sin. He took the justice that we deserve for our injustices. He did. Our wrongs were taken, he took those on in our place so that we could be forgiven. You see, one of the claims that he makes is that Jesus is the king. He's the king. And the king came and suffered for the people. This is the gospel. Normally the opposite of that's true, right? The people suffer for the king's mistakes. But that's not what the gospel is. King Jesus came and he had to suffer for our sin and our guilt and our shame in our place. It was necessary or we would never be forgiven. We'd never be forgiven. Some of you may have seen this movie. It's an older movie now, but The Last Emperor. Uh, it's, a, it's a story about, it's a true story. It's based on a true story of a young boy who lived this magical life of luxury. He had over a, a thousand people who were his workers that obeyed his command in a moment. He was the last emperor of China. And there's a moment in this film where his brother is talking to him and said, Man, when, when you do something wrong, what happens? Because it, like, everybody's basically worshiping you. When you do something wrong, what happens? And he says, if I do something wrong, the emperor responds, if I do something wrong, man, the people suffer. He's like, let me show you. And he comes and he tips over this vase and it shatters on the ground. And then one of his servants is beaten because of that vase being broken. He's like, they suffer because of my wrongs. The exact opposite of that is true for the gospel. The king suffers for our wrongs. He has done no wrong. And when we break that vase, he steps in and he says, I will take the punishment on their behalf. I will do it. That's what the gospel is. That's why Christ had to suffer. It was necessary for him or we could not be forgiven. But I love, I love what happens. It doesn't end there. It doesn't say it was necessary for Christ to suffer. It was necessary for Christ to suffer on the cross. That's not the end of the gospel. It says that Paul also preached that he has risen from the dead. He's risen from the dead. This is huge. This is huge. The Bible says that if, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. It's worthless. He just died in his sins, just like we'll die in our sins. But the fact that he defeated the grave, he conquered the curse, then we have hope and hope everlasting. You see, this picture of Christ raising from the dead gives us hope that we will one day raise from the dead because of what Christ did on our behalf. Do you see how important this truth is to turning our world upside down? Do you, do you notice that? I am extremely thankful for our healthcare workers. I, I pray for them. And if you are a healthcare worker, thank you. Thank you for what you do because it has been a hard and a tough season. And so I am grateful for you. Yeah, we can clap for that. I'm fine. We'll clap for that. 
I'm thankful for you. But may our trust never rest in our health care. And let me tell you why. As great as health care is, all it can do is delay death. All it can do is delay death. And I hope it delays death as long as possible, right? But the gospel says we're not going to try to delay death. We're going to defeat death. And that's what Christ did. That's not how he looks at us in our greatest of fears, the fear of death. And he gives us hope. And he says, you will move from life to life if you believe in me. Because I have defeated the grave. The thing that you fear most, you can have hope in. This is the good news of the gospel. This turns a world upside down. When we stop living in fear and anxiety all the time, and we trust, God, we're grateful for health care and how you've provided that, but we're thankful that one day, when death does come, that we have hope in that moment. We have hope in that moment. Do you realize what that truth does to our news headlines? This turns the world upside down. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the hope in which we rest in. This is the truth that these people are persuaded to believe in. And it tells us that the devout Greeks believed in this. These are people that said, well, there's a God out there. We don't know who he is, but there's some God. They hear this truth about the God who conquered death, and they're like, that's different. That's different from anything else we've ever heard. Wait, he stands in our place? He died because of us? Yes, that's different. And they believe. And I love that it says in here too, at least the women, the women who believed. It says these prominent women, these influential women, they believe in this message. And God uses these women through the rest of the book of Acts to shape culture. Lydia and Phoebe, it's amazing what God does through these women. You see, it starts with just three men coming in to share this good news of the gospel and it changes, it impacts an entire city. And you would think with Paul and Silas and possibly Timothy that if I came into a city and I saw this opposition and I, I saw that we didn't reach the masses, we just reached a few, that it would lead me discouraged and I would just need time to recoup, right? But look at verse 10. It says, they left that night and they went to another city. And in that city, when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue and they preached. They didn't let the opposition slow them down. They didn't, lack, they didn't say, well, the lack of having all of the masses with us, we just need to stop and rethink this. No, they went to the next city and they preached the gospel. Christ suffered in our place and he rose from the grave. And then you see that city's changed also. You see, even though they had all these things against them, they still continued to move on and still continued to see God through them change cities. So the question is, how in the world did they do that? How in the world did they shape a culture and shape a city? How? Well, that's where I feel like 1 Thessalonians gives us a little more glimpse of how they did that. So turn to 1 Thessalonians. We'll read the first three verses. As Paul writes this letter, he's, he's left there, he's been gone for a while, and he's wanting to check in on how this church is doing that he helped to start. So he writes this letter to his people, and it says, Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, consistently remembering you in our prayers. Remembering, listen to verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, 
and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He highlights three things that this church did, which we ultimately will see as we get into 1 Thessalonians. The whole province of Macedonia was changed because of their faith, their love, and their hope. Their faith, their love, and their hope. And the only way that you have a rich, deep faith, hope, and love like this that shapes a whole city and a whole province is that you're in God. That's where he starts in verse 1 to the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Prepositions define relationships. I am with him, or I am under the bridge, or I'm passing through the town. Prepositions give you relationships. And what Paul says as he writes to his churches, he doesn't say that you're with God, or you're by God, or you're near God. It says that they were in God. In God. That's how they're able to change a city, because they're in the one who has all the power to change everything. And what's amazing about this is what it's showing us is the heartbeat of it is when we step into God and we believe that he suffered in our place and he rose from the grave and somehow, some way that counted for you and for me gives us changing power externally. See, what God does first is he comes into our heart and he changes our hearts and our lives. And then he allows us to exchange or change the external. Some of us have been working so long to try to change the exterior of even our own lives, and we can't do it. It's because we need an interior change in which God comes into our heart and into our life, and he changes us and places us in him. Apart from us being in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no way that you're going to have faith that's steadfast or a love that labors or a faith that works You and I cannot do it apart from him. We can't. He is our strength. There is no external change without a first internal change from the Lord. When God changes us, when he changes us, then we see faith, hope, and love flourish in our lives. And I know, I know, I've seen the little cross stitching, I've seen the posters we are like, oh, faith, hope, and love. Those are like so abstract and so out there. But I love what Paul does is he brings them to earth and puts action with them. He says those that are in God, those that are going to turn the world upside down, they have faith that works. They have faith that works. You see, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ, no doubts. But when we place our faith in him and the object of our faith is him, then our faith will be lived out. It will work in amazing ways. Ephesians chapter 2 says it like this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how we're saved. We take that step of faith to trust in his grace to save us. The work that he did. And it says, it's not by your own doing. It's a gift of God that you have this salvation. Not a result from works. Our works cannot save us. Christ's works save us. By grace we have been saved. But that doesn't mean our faith has no works. Ephesians chapter 2, the end of that, says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That verse, let that settle on your heart for a minute. Let that change your, your faith this week. 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What he's saying is that before God created this earth, before God created you, he has already given, placed opportunities in your life to do good works. Beforehand, he knew, I'm going to put him in this family, I'm going to put her at this job, I'm going to put them at this school so that they can love these people well, so they can sacrifice in this way. I'm going to provide that promotion and that job so that they can help those in financial need. God has already prepared works for you and for me to do. Our faith has works. God, when he saved us, said, now I've saved you to good works. Live out your faith. Just as I have loved you, you love others. This is what God has called us to do. So let your faith be lived out. Let your faith be lived out. God's already prepared the works beforehand. All you have to do is live them out. If you're sitting here and you're saying, I believe that the God of all creation hears my prayers. That's my faith. The God that created all things, holds all things together, can save anyone. If that's true, then my prayers should be shaped differently. Am I praying for God to change our city? God, would you turn the world upside down and use me in some form or fashion? Are you praying, believing in the power of our God? You have faith that God can save anyone, but are you sharing the faith in a way that shows, I know he can believe it and he can save anyone. I believe that. God has called us to good works. He has. He has. But he doesn't just cause the good works. One of the good works he calls us to is love. Verse 3, it says that they have a labor of love. That word for labor right there is a picture of a word that they would use to talk about somebody that's worked in a field all day and they're exhausted. Exhausted. They're tired. They're like, oh gosh, I have poured myself out. It's like that's what a Christian love looks like. For those that are found in Christ, they pour out. They sacrifice of their time and their energy and their effort and their finances for others. It's a labor of love. Some of you are like, I don't want to labor to that extent. I don't, I don't want to love to that extent, right? Like, that's exhausting. If that's where you are, then hear me. You will never experience true love. You'll never experience true love. Because true love is a love that labors. Think about the love of God and how he labored for us. He loved us so much, he gave up everything to come to seek and to save that which was lost. Though he was rich, he became poor in order to save us. He lived a life in a broken world and gave his life for us. This is a labor of love. This is what our God shows us true love looks like. Love sacrifices for others. That's why, guys, it gets heavy when you get to the book of Ephesians chapter 5 when it talks about marriage and it says, hey, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's hard. It was a labor of love. He sacrificed and gave all that he had for her. He loved her. And God is calling us to do the same thing. That's why whenever I do premarital counseling with couples, one of the things I always talk about is, hey, the wedding day, that's important. Like, your wedding day is here. That's great. There's going to be some tension. Work out some details. But don't focus your whole prep time on that day. Focus on your marriage. It's not just about the wedding day. It's about the marriage. It's about years and months to come when you love and care and sacrifice for others. I mean, better is the end of the thing than the beginning. I really feel like we need to be celebrating way harder for 50-year wedding anniversaries than one day, right? 
Because that's what true love is. It's a love that says, I want to sacrifice for this person. And if any of you have kids, you know that when you love a child, you're going to sacrifice and you're going to give to them, right? Like, that's a labor of love at times, right? It just is. It's hard. But God's word calls us to a deeper labor of love than just our family. Far deeper levels. I mean, family's hard enough, right? It is. It really is. But God's word is going to tell us, hey, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And I know some of you are like, Ryan, I don't really have any enemies. But there is this person at work I don't like, and if they succeed, I hope they don't, I hope they fail. But, like, they're not my enemies, right? Like, that's kind of what goes through our mind. We're like, oh, we don't have any enemies. But God calls us to love our enemies. And that's what Jesus did. Think about this. Jesus hung on a cross. And the people that literally nailed his hands to the cross, he prays in that moment and says, Father, forgive them. What? And that's a labor of love right there. Literally, they have nailed him to a cross, and he says, God, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when you love like that, turn a word upside down. It'll change lives. When Jesus hangs on a cross and he prays that, there's a Roman soldier there. The Roman soldier that just led in his execution, right? And when Jesus hangs on the cross and he prays that and he dies and he sees that labor of love, his response is, man, truly this is the Son of God. Man, it turned his world upside down in an instant because he saw a love that labored. Church, this is what God is calling us to do. Let our love labor. Let it labor well. As our love labors well, it leads to hope. That's the third thing he says here. You want to change the world? This is how God changes the world. Through faith, hope, and love. And a love that is steadfast. Hope has to have endurance. It has to have endurance. Because sometimes you wait for years for something to change. You wait for so long for your faith and your hope to become sight. It's got to have the steadfastness. And their endurance right here, and their hope, their steadfastness, is not because they have something within themselves that they're holding on to, this personal strength that's helping them to have steadfast hope. It tells us in verse 3 where their hope is found. Steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Their endurance is inspired by the returning of Jesus Christ. And from a pastor's heart for a minute, that's one of the reasons about a year ago that we planned on going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Because this book is full of hope, and specifically the hope of the returning of Christ. And I just feel that as a culture, we are losing our hope. We're losing hope because we've lost sight of what the, the destination is, what the finish line is. And so when we look around at this world and we see all these headlines of the brokenness in the world, we just lost hope because we don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. It's just brokenness after brokenness after brokenness. But First Thessalonians, every single chapter ends with the second coming of Christ, the returning of Christ, every one of them. And as it goes through these different practical things that it tells us to do, how we live out our faith, how we labor in love, and how we hold on steadfastly to our hope, it ends every single chapter with wait patiently for Christ is coming again. He's coming again. He's going to make all things new. 
Our hope is not in a political party to fix things. Our hope is in Christ, the one who will make all things new. And I, I beg of you, please, that your hope would be more in your prayer and in the gathered body of believers worshiping Christ than in your vote. And I vote and I believe in all that stuff and I'm thankful for it, but that's not where my hope lies. My hope is in the returning of Christ and he's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things new. And this is what a steadfastness of hope looks like. Now, I know, I, I get it, I understand. Some of you, I imagine, are thinking today, right? you're telling me the way we're going to turn a world upside down is by faith and by hope and love. Like, really? Really? Yeah. Because I believe our God did that and is doing that. I believe his word shows us this is how God changes the world. It's not with the masses. It's not with a lack of opposition. It's not with having the most powerful leaders in place. It's through his power and his strength and his might working through us and our faith and our hope and our love. What's amazing about this is this is God's truth, but this is reality. This is reality. There's a professor at Baylor University, Robert Woodbury. You see a picture of him on the screen here. Robert is an amazingly smart man. He's won 15 academic awards um, for what he's done in his different works. And I don't know if Robert's a believer or not. I, I don't. Like, nothing that I saw uh, said whether he's a believer in Jesus Christ or not. But he wrote this article that's got a lot of traction. It's an article for the American Political Science Association. And I know some of y'all have already read this. So for those of you who have already read your American Political Science Association for the month, uh, just sit tight for us of us, those of us that haven't read it. But... Uh, in here, he writes this article, and it's called The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. This is not a Christian organization, okay? And in here, in this article that he writes, he argues that historically and statistically, conversionary Protestants change nations. And he, he uses the words conversionary Protestants specifically. He calls them CPs throughout his whole article because he's like, hey, it's not religion changes nations. That's not it. He's like, looking historically or statistically, religions are not what change nations. Nonprofits are not what's changing nations. He says it's these conversionary Protestants, which would be those that are believers in Christ, believes the truth of the gospel, and believes that that truth can change people's hearts and minds. He says those people, whether you believe it or not, they change cities and nations. They change the world. And through this I don't know, maybe 30, 40 page article that he writes. He says that when he looks at the history, he looks at the statistics, CPs come in and they change freedom. Freedom is much broader and greater than they've seen beforehand. They change education, they change healthcare, they change civil society, they change organizationally. There's reforms there. But what's amazing about it in this article is he said, but they're not trying to do those things. They're coming into these nations, but they're not coming in, hmm, how do we change the politics of this nation? How in the world do we change the healthcare? They're not coming in to do that. How do we make it, the, the, the freedoms wider and broader? But somehow they're doing that. These conversionary Protestants are changing the world. And I love what he says. Even though they're not trying, this is his words. He says, it is their faith and their love for people that changes society. It's their faith and their love that changes society. 
how God changes the world. The very truths that this article is telling us have already been found in the book of Acts and the book of 1 Thessalonians. God desires for you and for me, if we're in Christ, to change the world through our faith and our hope and our love. Will you change the world for the glory of God? Bow your heads with me. For those of you that are here and you're thinking it's, it's far too, too grand of a thing for me to think about changing the world. Because you look at your life and, and your world and you're like, my world is a mess. Then let me just invite you to let Christ change your world today. And as he changes you internally, he will use you to change the world externally. So if that's you today, you just have to believe that, that simple message that Paul was preaching. That it was necessary that Christ would have to suffer in my place. And that he rose from the grave. And somehow and in some way, that counted for me. And I believe that truth. God's word says, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, you will be saved. Your world will be changed. It will be turned upside down. So if that's you today, pray and ask for God to save you. Thank him for suffering in your place that you could be redeemed. For others of us who know that we are in Christ, we know that we're in Christ, would you be so bold to pray that God would grow your faith, your hope, and your love this week? pray and ask God, would you show me the ways that you prepared beforehand for my faith to be lived out, the works that you prepared, help me to live those out this week. Pray that. Pray that your love would labor well, that when you're tired and you're fatigued and exhausted, that you would look to Christ and remember his great love for you and that it would spur you on to labor and love for others. And for those of you that are without hope, you're at the end of that that road and you're struggling, would you take the time today and just pray and ask God, help my hope be fixed on you again. Help my hope to rest in the fact that you're coming again and you're making all things new. All that's broken will be repaired. Would you pray that now? Just pray to the Lord. Lay your heart out before him right now. Christ, we praise you for being the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who never changes, but who is always changing us. God, we praise you for that. We, we're grateful for that. And Lord, may our worship come from this truth of realizing you suffered, you died in our place, and you rose from the grave. May it give us hope to greater levels than we've ever had before. And in a way, the world looks at us and says, I desperately need that hope. May we praise, may we worship, may we live in such a way that we change the world to the glory.